Turn with me now to the book of Galatians. Some of you are hoping I would say the Song of Solomon, but that ship has sailed in adult Sunday school class, and um, you can uh, watch that video or hear that audio if you would like as we unpacked that book in about an hour this morning. But we're, we're back on track in our study in Galatians. And obviously, this time of year, our minds have already been, dire- been directed there. We are celebrating Advent, that is Christ's incarnation, Christ's coming into this world. Why did he come? Why did the Son of God come? Uh, he came firstly to reveal God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right hand or right side, he has made him known. Would you like to know God? Look at Jesus. He came to ransom sinners. Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is used to do what? It is a payment to accomplish what? To release an individual from slavery. Well, we were enslaved to the guilt and the power of sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the ransom paid in full upon Calvary's cross. He came thirdly to defeat Satan. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil rules in man by virtue of his sin. And the devil rules over man by virtue of the wages of sin, which is death. And upon Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus Christ disarmed Satan and broke his power over man. Fourthly, the Son of God came to make us God's sons. Galatians 4, 5, and 6. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as Sons. Adoption as sons, meaning that as Christians, we are free. We are free from the law. That's Paul's point. We are free from the law's curse because the Lord Jesus bore that curse in full upon the cross. And we are free from the obligation to fulfill the Old Testament law. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled it completely, entirely. Follow along now as I read in Galatians 5, verse 1. Because among the churches of Galatia, what is the issue? They are beginning to question their freedom in Christ. They are beginning to wonder whether or not they are really free. They are beginning to entertain the notion as a result of false teachers who have emerged in their midst that perhaps they do need to live under the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And Paul, at this juncture in his epistle to them, declares for freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I think Paul's pretty serious. I think Paul is a bee in his bonnet, doesn't he? He's upset. He is really upset. Because in the churches of Galatia, there is something threatening their peace, their stability, their joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is simply this, the notion that to be really saved, to be right in the sight of God, to be sanctified, to be really spiritual, one must still live under the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant. Paul's point is what? No, my friends, verse 1, for freedom, that you might be free, that you might live as free men. Christ has set us free. We've been adopted as sons. We're free from the Old Testament law, and we are free from its curse because Christ bore the penalty of our sin at Calvary's cross through the shedding of his blood by dying. And we are free from the obligation to fulfill the Old Testament law because the Lord Jesus has fulfilled it on our behalf. And now if you want to be accepted in the sight of God, you believe in the Lord Jesus. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus, you're united to the Lord Jesus. And when you're united to the Lord Jesus, as far as God is concerned, you've paid the penalty for having broken the law because you are united with the one who has paid that penalty. Moreover, now you are righteous in the sight of God. It is as if you had met all the obligations of God's law because you are one, united, with that person, the Lord Jesus, who has fulfilled the law completely. Therefore, you are accepted in the sight of God. And you stand accepted in the sight of God. By grace, through faith in Christ. Oh, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And therefore, an imperative. Stand firm, therefore. Stop wavering. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Oh, Paul drives home his point. He does so powerfully. He does so effectively by appealing to five truths. 
and he wants to impress these five truths upon the hearts of his audience. Here they are, very simple. I'm not going to elaborate a great deal on these. Truth number one. Oh, my friends, freedom for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Firstly, understand this, that to go back under the law, to be under the law, is to be severed from Christ. Let's be clear. Let's not mix words. You go back there, you are cut off. You are severed from the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, circumcision standing for the entire Old Testament law and everything that is part of it, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He will be of no use to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you go back under the law, please understand, you must keep the whole law because since Christ's coming, there is no longer any provision made for sinners under the Old Testament law. Buddy, you're on your own, is what Paul's saying. And all that that law requires, you must fulfill. And in so doing, you are cutting yourself off from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first point he makes. The second point is this. Look, stand firm and understand that to be under the law is to fall from grace. Picking it up in verse 4. You who would be justified by the law. So you who would go back and live under that law thinking that God's acceptance of you is contingent upon your adherence to that law, please understand, you have fallen away from grace. Not the possession of grace, but the profession of grace. That if you do this, please understand, and unequivocal in what I am saying, if you do this, you are demonstrating what? That you never understood the first thing about God's grace. You are indicating, you are professing, you are proclaiming, you are making it abundantly clear that grace was some sort of hypothetical notion or idea, but you were never truly united with Christ through faith. And you are falling from grace, for through the Spirit, verse 5, by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, here's our hope, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's got nothing to do with what we do. It's completely unrelated to anything we offer. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so understand, if you go back, if you turn back the clock, you are repudiating the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, he says, oh, please understand that if you go back under the law, to do that is to disobey the truth. Verse 7 You were running well. You were in a race. Things seemed to be going well from all appearances. There you were out front. And uh, there seemed to be progress. You seemed to be heading in the right direction. You seemed to have your eyes fixed on the finish line and the prize. But who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who cut in as you were running and caused you to trip, caused you to stumble? Stumble in that you are now moving away, backing away from the truth. This persuasion, verse 8, is not from him who calls you. This is not of God. Oh, a little leaven. The leaven has seeped in. It is now leavening, corrupting the whole lump. Oh, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. 
and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Oh, understand, to go back is to be severed from Christ, verses 2 through 4. It is to fall from grace, verses 4 through 6. It is to disobey the truth, verses 7 through 10. And fourthly, it is to remove the offense of the cross, 11th verse. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In other words, I am being persecuted. Why? Because I do not preach circumcision. In that case, the offense, so for those who preach circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. Why? Because those who preach circumcision, those who preach, hey, it is contingent upon us. It is dependent upon our observance of the Old Testament law. Hey, God's acceptance of us is directly related to our relationship to the Mosaic covenant. Please understand that if you adopt that mindset, the cross is no longer offensive. The cross is offensive to those who recognize what? That human ability plays no factor whatsoever when it comes to salvation. That salvation does not depend upon human ability. Salvation does not depend upon our effort. Salvation does not depend upon our merit. Oh, that is offensive to the natural man. That is offensive to the individual who's determined, who is convinced in his mind, in the recesses of his soul. No, it must be dependent. It must be contingent on me. It must depend upon something I do. Oh, no, please understand. And this is the offense of the cross. When it comes to salvation, you contribute absolutely nothing. And now, my friends, if you are going back to live under the law, you are removing the offense of the cross. You are departing from Christ's salvific work at Calvary. And then he adds, fifthly, oh, my friends, stand firm and understand that to go back under the law is, in the final analysis, to be cursed. Twelfth verse. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. They are cursed. And friends, if you go back there, you're joining them. And you are as accursed as they are. There you have it. Book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 12 for, verses. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Is this useful, these verses? Don't answer. Don't, don't go like this or anything like that. It's a hypothetical question. It is useful, by the way, in case you're wondering. Is this useful? Are these verses of any use whatsoever? And you'll see in the sermon notes, I've written that little word there, uses. Do you see that in bold? And I've got a list of five. Guess what? My plane out of Kentucky on Friday was delayed. It's now seven. I went over that text and I squeezed it a little bit more and I realized, Stephen, there's a lot more here. There's probably more than seven. But here are seven uses that emerge from the text. The first use is the principal point of the passage. Here it is. Enjoying freedom in Christ is hard work. Seems a bit odd, doesn't it? We think it should just be easy. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying it is hard work. Enjoying freedom in Christ is hard work. Very first verse. For freedom, 
Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It is so easy. I'm speaking to Christians. Each of these seven uses, some will apply to you. Some of these may not necessarily apply to you. But I think all seven are going to touch different people in different ways. If by the time we're finished, you're thinking to yourself, well, none of them really touched me. You come and talk to me afterwards, and I will tell you which ones applied to you. There is something here for everyone. Enjoying freedom in Christ is hard work. Why? Because as Christians, it is easy to fall into old patterns of thinking. We do it effortlessly. We fall back. We are inclined that way to old patterns of thinking. I am talking about those well-worn paths in our minds. And although we have repudiated them, although we have, figuratively speaking, turned our back on them, they still call out to us and they beckon us backwards. Here's a case in point. Maybe, just Maybe God's acceptance of me is contingent upon my performance. Just maybe. But just maybe God's favor, God's mercy does depend on how I'm doing. But here's a popular one in our day. Just maybe, maybe it is possible for me to lose my salvation. Each of those thought patterns reveals what? That deep down inside, we are still convinced that when it comes to salvation, it is contingent in the final analysis upon whom? You and me. It is contingent upon me. It does rest squarely on my shoulders. Grace, I don't deny it. Okay, fine. But no, 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 no. There is still something I must do. There is still a person I must be. There is still the silver bullet. I don't know. But something that will set me apart in the sight of God. Friend, if that is you, if that's hitting you where you are this morning, please hear this. You cannot divide salvation between Christ's work and your work. Don't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. You cannot Divide salvation between your work and Christ's work. The moment you do, you render Christ's work insufficient and you fall back into legalism. Oh, hear it again. I think I said it a few moments ago. When it comes to the question of salvation, God's acceptance of the sinner, God's forgiveness of the sinner, you and I, we bring absolutely nothing. God provides everything. And Christ's merit is sufficient. And Christ's mercy is abundant. That's use number one. Enjoying freedom in Christ is hard work. Stand in that grace. The second use is this. Faith works through love. Sixth verse. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. 
but only faith working through love. We know faith is the hand. Faith is the hand of the soul whereby we receive or through which we receive the Lord Jesus. Faith is the instrument by which we become one with him. And because we are one with him, we come to life. What is the clearest sign of life? It is fruit. What is the principal fruit? Love. Love for God. Love for God's glory. Love for God's will. Love for God's people. Love for God's word. We are not saying, we are not saying that love works through faith, but that faith has its expression through love. Faith is a grace in its own right. And faith, there is nothing meritorious about it. Faith is simply, again, the hand of the soul receiving and applying the Lord Jesus, whereby we are one with him. Again, we become one with him. We abide in the vine. We come to life. And where there is life, there's fruit. And so this faith, by which we become one with the Lord Jesus, now shows itself in what? In love. I was a little shocked this past week. I was engaged in conversation with a PhD student uh, back in Louisville. And I can't even remember how we got on the topic. It was just so overwhelming for me. But he began to, it, it became clear in the course of our conversation that even he, after all these years of study, after all these years of being involved in pastoral ministry, still viewed faith as what? Something that he had done at a moment of time, way there in the back, in the past, but something that really had no bearing on how he was living his life in the present. That resonate with anyone here this morning. That resonates with you. This use is for you. Faith works through love. Yes, there's a starting point. I was five years old. I believed in the Lord Jesus. That faith brought me into union with the Lord Jesus. I wasn't a perfect little boy after that. No, I won't pretend otherwise. But over the course now of 45 years, there has been what? By God's grace, by virtue of my union with the vine. There's been at least a little fruit. And there is at least a little love. And so I'm speaking to those, perhaps only one, but you must hear this. If you still reside in that fanciful world, it's really a world of your own creation and invention. But this idea that simply in the past, you made a decision, you believed in the Lord Jesus, but it has had no bearing on your life ever since. I submit to you, friend, that you have duped yourself. You are deceived. No, when we become one with the Lord Jesus through faith, faith has no merit. We simply receive him, but it results in a union. And we abide in the vine. And by abiding in the vine, there is what? There is fruit. And so let me ask you, if this applies to you, do you love God's word? I mean, love it. Do you love God's people? Even the tricky ones. It's putting it nicely, isn't it? The tricky ones. The complex ones. Do you love God's commands? His will? Do you love his glory? Oh, these are the fruit of faith. This is the fruit of faith working through love. Here's use number three. The Christian life is a race. Paul alludes to it right at the outset of verse seven. You were running well. You were in a race. And there you were pumping away and things were going well. Who hindered you? Literally, 
Who jumped in in front of you? Who cut in? I don't know if you can recall. I don't even recall what, uh, what Summer Olympics it was. We're going back probably to the maybe 80 Summer Olympics. Was that Los Angeles? Zola Budd, Mary Decker. Anybody remember that? Oh, a few. There you go. Zola Budd. It was this huge showdown. I think they ran the mile, didn't they? This showdown between the South Africans, Zola Budd, Mary T- Decker, the American. And uh, they, they, there was no love loss between these two. And it was a showdown as they ran the mile. And wouldn't you know what, halfway through, I can't remember who cut in on whom, but both they down went, they, they both went down. And they were, they were guaranteed to finish first and second. I don't even think they finished in the top 10. That is the analogy here. That is the mental picture that Paul is trying to conjure up. You were running. There you were. You were doing really well. Somebody cut in and you caught their heel and down you've gone just like a I don't know, a load of bricks or a clump of potatoes or something. You're sprawled on the ground. They have hindered you from obeying the truth. Oh, please understand, my friend. The Christian life is a race. It's a race. And here's what we must get. It is not a sprint. It's not a dash. It is a a mile. Oh, it's more than that. It is a 26 miles. It is a marathon. And it requires what? endurance. We're in it for the long haul, and it requires vigilance. Why? Because there are plenty of things that will seek to cut in. There are all sorts of things that will seek to cause us to trip up and to stumble it. Oh, please understand it. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize. I just got the Olympics going through my mind now, and I can't quite get it out. And we've got... um, the Winter Olympics just coming around the corner, right? February. I quite like the, the Winter Olympics, more than the Summer Olympics, actually. And one of my favorite events is the short track speed skating. Not the long track, you know, when they're swinging their arm like this. The short track speed skating. And if you have never watched it this February, you tune in for the short track speed skating. It is pure bedlam. Why? Because everyone is cutting in on everyone else. And down they go. That is the powerful imagery. That as you run this marathon, as you run this journey called the Christian life, oh, you must be vigilant. You must be watching because there are all sorts of things that will come from our enemy, the devil himself. All sorts of things that will seek to cause you to trip up, stumble, Oh, the Christian life is a race. Here's use number four. Error is contagious. Where am I going with that? Ninth verse. A little leaven. Leavens the whole lump. The lump might be you as an individual, for all I know. It may be the seed of error is there. And when the seed of doctrinal error is there, it will spread. And firstly, it will spread within the individual. It will have a negative effect, a negative impact in life in innumerable ways. Cause and effect, folks. Cause and effect. Cause and effect. That if we get certain fundamental truths wrong, they will corrupt the whole. They will spread and leaven the whole. And then from the individual, where does error spread? It's contagious. It spreads to, to others. Oh, it behooves us. It, oh, the necessity on our part 
to be diligent in the study of God's Word, faithful in the handling of God's Word, recognizing that Satan is a snake seeking to deceive God's people. 2 Corinthians 11.3 He is a wolf seeking to destroy God's sheep. John 10.12 He is a lion seeking to devour God's children. 1 Peter 5.8 We see it played out before our very eyes in the churches of Galatia. Just one false idea. One false seed. One bad seed planted. And now it run, they run the risk of corrupting the whole. Oh, be vigilant in your doctrine, brothers and sisters. Oh, be vigilant. Doctrine does matter. Crossing our T's and dotting our I's, it does matter. Orthodoxy is important. Clarity is important because I guarantee it. Where there is bad doctrine, it will be made manifest at some point in the life. Here's the fifth use. The cross is offensive. 11th verse. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, if I were to preach circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. If I would preach with those other, those Jewish leaders, those who have infiltrated the churches of Galatia, if I were to preach what they are preaching, uh, I wouldn't be persecuted. And I wouldn't be persecuted because the offense of the cross would be removed. The offense of the cross would be removed because I would agree with them that we must obey the Old Testament law in order to be saved. In other words, there there would no longer be anything to be offended about. I would be affirming right with them that salvation is contingent upon us. I would be stroking everyone's ego. And I would be informing everyone it does matter what you do. It does matter your relationship to that Old Testament law. And so salvation and God's acceptance of you is contingent upon your effort, is contingent upon your works. Well, if I were preaching that, the offense of the cross would be gone and there would no longer be any persecution. Oh, we derive from it this fundamental truth. The cross is offensive. It offends because it refuses to allow man to establish righteousness based on his ability. Did you catch that? It refuses to allow man to establish righteousness, a right standing before God based on his ability. You know, that might explain, as I just apply these uses, that might apply to someone here. It might apply to quite a few people here. It might explain why that cousin or that parent, or that neighbor is so hostile. You now know why. It is because the message you preach is fundamentally offensive. It annoys people. When the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, it annoys people. Why? Because first off, it is telling people that when it comes to your relationship with God, Your ability does not factor into it. The cross and that bloody scene, the Lord Jesus, arms outstretched, gasping for air and crying out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That very scene declares what? That when it comes to salvation, you and I, we don't contribute anything. God will not accept 
anything from you when it comes to salvation. That explains why your cousin doesn't like you. That explains why he's offended whenever you bring up the gospel. He is offended whenever you bring up the gospel because you refuse to do what? Recognize what he is holding on to for dear life, which is his human ability, his innate goodness, the person he thinks he is. Oh, more to the point, that might speak to someone here this morning who's actually quite offended by everything I've said to this point. Maybe you've been here, you've been offended for some time. I wish Stephen would just tone it down when it comes to sin. We're really not that bad. Come on. I've done some bad stuff. I regret it. But boy, I'm not like some of those guys in the headlines these days, right? There is something. And yeah, okay, I'm bad. But the glass, half empty, half full, three quarters empty, quarter full, whatever. But this idea of total depravity, this idea of radical depravity, this idea that so far as God is concerned, when it comes to me having a relationship with him, he looks upon me and he declares definitively at Calvary's cross, I will accept nothing from you. Absolutely nothing. You will bring nothing. You will contribute nothing because, my friend, you have nothing. There is nothing meritorious in you in the sight of God. Anybody offended? That is offensive. Oh, my friends, when rightly understood and appropriated, it is glorious. Why? Because the way up is first down. Is it not? It is as we go down, understanding who we are and are overwhelmed with poverty of spirit, that we begin to look up. And where do we look? Calvary's cross. And upon Calvary's cross, we see atonement made in full for our sins. And we see the only access to God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the cross is offensive. Here's number six. There is a time for righteous indignation. There is a time for righteous indignation. You get it, first of all, in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And you certainly get it in the 12th verse. Righteous indignation. I wish those who unsettle you would go off and make themselves eunuchs, is what Paul is saying. I wish they would butcher themselves. I wish they'd go off and emasculate themselves. Oh, this is righteous indignation. His righteous indignation does not arise from a personal grievance. Mark it, please. His righteous indignation does not arise from a personal grievance. His righteous indignation arises out of his concern for these people in the churches of Galatia. His righteous indignation arises out of his love for the truth. His love for the gospel. His love for God. Oh, there might be a lesson here for someone today. Maybe, you know, is there any truth you'll get excited about? I'm not asking if you get excited about politics. I wish half of us would get as excited about the truths of God as we do about politics. I really do. I'm just half as excited as we do about the state of the world and the newspaper's headlines and all. I just wish we'd get just half as excited about the truths of the gospel. 
I wish there was a little righteous indignation when it comes to the truths of the gospel. Uh, William Hendrickson wrote quite a few decades ago, our churches have lost the ability to glow with righteous indignation. Lost the ability to glow with righteous indignation. A, a deep love for the truth, which leads us to a deep concern for the well-being of people's souls, which leads us to a holy intolerance of anything that undermines the truth of God. Here's the seventh and final lesson. You didn't think we'd get there. We're there. Here it is. Seventh use. Christ is everything. Back in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What is Paul saying in one sweep of the hand, or rather, I guess, one little swiggle of the pen? Uh, I don't care who you are. I really don't, Paul's saying. Jew, Gentile, he said it earlier, man, woman, slave, free, social class, I don't care. I don't care where you've come from. I don't care what you are doing. Understand that in Christ Jesus, all of that counts for nothing. Why? Because Christ is everything. Oh, here is hope of pardon, isn't it? This great truth, Christ is everything, hope of pardon. Here's a question for you. And, and I say this with some reservations, but you'll see where I'm going with it. Do we, does the gospel, more important, does the gospel have anything to say to Matt Lauer? Does it? Does the gospel have anything to say to Matt Lauer? Does the gospel have anything to say to the innumerable number of broadcasters, politicians, judges who are all over the headlines now, and it is but the tip of the tip of the iceberg? Does the gospel have anything to say to them? Does the gospel extend hope for pardon? More to the point, if we were to have a bright light shed upon us this day, and our souls were laid bare to public view. Oh, here's the question, my friend. Does the gospel have anything to say to you? Oh, the hope of pardon that in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is prepared to say to the sinner, the foulest of sinners, he is prepared to say, I forgive you. I will forget your sins. I will not hold them against you on the judgment day because I have held them against my beloved son, Jesus Christ, upon Calvary's cross. Oh, there is the hope of pardon. Christ is everything. Oh, here's the hope of peace. That having come to God in and through Jesus Christ, that we no longer have any reason to fear the sting of death, the terror of judgment, the torment of hell, or the wrath of God. Christ has swallowed it all, and he has left nothing for us. The hope of pardon, the hope of peace, and here's the hope of glory. And with this phrase, we'll draw it to a close this day, right there in the fifth verse. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of 
righteousness. Christ is everything. The hope of pardon, forgiveness. The hope of peace, reconciliation with God. And the hope of a coming glory. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that as your word has been opened and declared this day, that you might indeed send forth your spirit powerfully and effectually in the lives of young and old men and women, boys and girls, and that we might truly take these truths and wonderful lessons to heart. And we ask it for the salvation of unbelievers in our midst. We ask it for the edification of your people. We ask it for the awakening of perhaps those who belong to you who have fallen asleep for some time. We ask it that it might provide direction to the careless. It might bring comfort to the discouraged. And we pray that it might challenge those who perhaps are lost in their presumption. And we pray that by all this, your kingdom would come among us. And we ask it above all else for your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.